at City Light to make it function as a church, as a family, as a loving community. Um, and there's a bunch of people that volunteer their time and a team of people that do, do that to like, help uh, City Light to, to go forward. And uh, at City Light, as you know, we have, you know, we've structured ourselves in a way that there's sort of different M areas. And um, one of those areas is ministry, which is really key in helping people to serve and plug in at church. And that is led by my friend, Ebony. So please welcome Ebony to the front. Wow. You know, I'm not they weren't sh- like this at 11 a.m. They I were know, like, who right? is she? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's better playing for your home crowd, isn't it? Your home crowd is where it's at, isn't it? Your home crowd, I know. So it's like, you know, when, at 11 o'clock, what normally happens is Jez will give you one clap. And it's just like, oh, thanks, man. That's how it normally works with that. He kept you once. That, you just go mental here. Anyway, good to have you here, Ebs. Yeah, the home crowd advantage, which I like. Um, tell, us, uh, tell us a little about yourself, Ebony's story, just briefly, what you do, where you grew up, um, all that sort of stuff. Sure. So I grew up in the Southern Shire, um, and then about two years ago, I moved closer to the city. So um, I had to find a church. Well, I wanted to find a church closer yep. um, to home. So now I live in Roselle, so it's like walking distance, which is cool. Um, so during the week, I spend kind of one day um, doing city light stuff, um, and then I three days a week I do I work as a lawyer, and then I'm also doing a PhD. Um, as well, so that's kind of what I do during the week. Lots of stuff. What you, what's your PhD on? Are you, it's complicated. <laughs> short short answer is um, I'm looking at um, the healthcare that's provided in immigration detention centres and some of the ethical sort of issues around that. Yeah. Uh, I asked Ebs a question this morning. She had no idea I was going to ask and I really threw her off, which I enjoyed. I did a research on Ebs and uh, I'm going to go with the same one. Did um, you know? Same question. Yeah, sorry, a bit boring. <laughs> Uh, it's always going to ask me another question. I know, I try to throw it off again, just get into mind, a bit of mind games. Uh, <laughs> I did it though. Ebony loves fast cars, right? Is that right? She used to own an MX-5. Right, Ebs. Well, you didn't, I didn't know you knew about that one. I heard what you said before, I listened. Oh. <laughs> I was listening to what you said, Ebs. You be careful, I remember everything, Ebony. Um, and I uh, used to own a, a, a Subaru Impreza. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, she told me it was impeccable. Anyway. No, 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 no. It was the... Oh, it was a Toyota Corona? My first car was a 1975 Toyota Corona, and it was like, yeah, impeccable condition, completely um, original, so yeah. like the dashboard was all like old with like cassette players, and yeah. it was really nice. I often, I often come down Darling Street, and I see everybody's doing burnouts in a car, like I'm like, Ebs, what's happening there? That's even funnier if you knew what I'd drive now. You now, <laughs> you now drive a Fiat, right? And it's like this big. You gave me the tone that I couldn't fit my legs in the car. It was, um, it was pretty squashed. But she likes fast cars, so I'll ask for that a little, a little bit later on. Uh, you, are, you are on our staff team, which has been great. You come to our staff meeting, you can contribute so much. Um, uh, tell us, what, what is your role and what do you do? Yep, so um, I look after the ministry M. Um, so ministry just means service. Um, so it's like this idea that um, because we know Christ and, and um, Jesus serves served us and was a servant when he came to earth um we're also called to be servants and um and this church doesn't run without um people who serve um so i just try and i guess encourage people to serve and and make the church run by putting people into serving roles yeah Yep, um, and I think you were saying the other day, it's, we're running it up now, 70% of people here serve in some capacity, which is amazing, yeah. and that's, uh, that's, that makes the church run, basically, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right, and I think um, 
Yeah, I think there's, there's a passage um, in Ephesians 4 that has a really beautiful picture of the church as a body and yeah. how um, each of us are different parts of the body and, and each of us are skilled and talented in really unique and different ways and we've all got um, a skill or a gift or a talent that we can use for God. Like, you know, it might not be up the front playing the guitar or something, but um, but everyone's got a skill and, and, a, and a gift that we can use for God's glory. And um, yeah, and it's, so it's really beautiful when all of those little different parts come together and form a strong sort of family yeah. unit. How does ministry work here? Like, what does it look like if someone wants to serve? What's the, what's the process? How does it all work? Okay, yeah. So, um, we're really... Um, so, okay, so there's two things. So, we've got the Sunday services, um, and we kind of... We have to obviously make the Sunday services run, so we need yeah. people to do sound and AV and, and play in the band or do kids' church, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, and I kind of call them formal ministry roles, um, and, and that's, yeah, where you're formally serving in a position. Um, but then we're also really big on missional communities. So um, when we join church, you're placed in a, a little missional community, which is like a little mini family. Um, and and that's, um, that's a group of people that you can, I guess, informally serve just by loving each other and investing in each other. And, um, and so we can serve each other in that way as well. And within each missional community group, there is a ministry rep, um, which is someone in the group who's tasked to, um, I guess, encourage the group to be serving and loving each other, um, but is also um, the idea would be that they would eventually meet up with everyone and chat through what gifts and service each mm. person has and try and um, find a way for, for each person to find um, a way to serve our church. And, and I guess the idea is that um, the more involved you are at church, the more plugged in you feel yeah. and the more you're part of the family and yeah, um, yeah and the more you're just blessed by that opportunity to serve. And yeah. Um, tell us, uh, uh, ministry going forward, what do you hope happens through ministry and this ministry M? Yeah, so I think, I guess one of my hopes would be that everyone at our church does feel plugged in and loved and yeah. part of our family and, yeah. um, and feels, um, yeah, valuable and, and um, like, a, yeah, an integral part of City Light and, um, and yeah, and uh, are given the opportunity to serve and experience the joy that comes through service. Um, and I guess the other hope that I have is that our church would be somewhere that it's a pleasure to serve. So yeah. um, I sort of suggested this morning, like, think about have how recently have you, you know, said thanks to your MC leaders or thanks to the people up the front singing or yeah. up down the back on AV or something. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to keep thinking about those people who are serving us every week that we yeah. probably don't realize or take it for granted a bit. And yeah, um, yeah so I'd love for City Light to be somewhere that's a pleasure to serve as well. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, Eb serves here. Uh, she has for the last little while, one day a week, unpaid. She has such a high capacity um, she is doing an amazing thing. She's, uh, I used to run the ministry M. She's taken it off my hands so I can do other things. She's such a huge blessing to have at our church, um, and she's a valuable member of our staff team. Um, so I want to say thank you for all that you do. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Gail. <laughs> Please thank Ed for me. Uh, we are now going to look at the Bible as we do here every week at City Light. Uh, we're looking at the book of Acts. We are almost all the way through the book of Acts. We've got three weeks to go. Um, and we're in Acts 26 today. Um, that should come on the screen behind me. We're looking at sentences 1 through to 18. And then Jez will come and speak to us from that passage. So Acts 26, sentences 1 right through to 18. It says this. Agrippa said to Paul... Is it permitted for you to speak for yourself? 
Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that today I'm going to make a defense before you about everything I'm accused of by the Jews, especially since you're an expert in the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from, from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among uh, my own nation in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest part of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. Because of this hope, I am being accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself suppose it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. This I actually did in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison, since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. Being greatly enraged at them, I even pursued them to foreign cities. Under these circumstances, I was traveling to Damascus with authority and a commission from the, from the chief priests. And at midday, while on the road, O king, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and with those traveling with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me in Hebrew saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. But I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of things you have seen and of things in which you will, will appear to. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes and that you may, turn, you may help them to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. One of our children is not sleeping particularly well, so um, we're operating on about five hours a night on average, which is starting to scramble the circuits a little. I feel like I'm starting to like to, to hear colours and things like that. It's all starting to, to come a bit unstuck. But um, look, it's, um, it's great to be here this afternoon and on an afternoon where we are celebrating as a church family, the family growing and um, dedicating babies, which is an awesome thing. Another pro-parenting tip, if you are a parent here, if you're ever feeling bad about yourself and whether or not you're parenting well, you should go on Netflix and watch a documentary called Trophy Kids about parents who are basically living out the sporting dreams they never achieved through their kids. I watched it and I feel so much better about myself. <laughs> so for no other reason than that, do that. If you're ever down you know, during the week and it's been a rough week, Alex, just get on to that. Um, but look, it's, um, it's great to be, to, to be looking at Acts 26 here this afternoon as we come towards the end of, of the, this book in the Bible, this story of the early church and how the gospel went out from... Uh, Jerusalem, where it started, where Jesus lived and died and, and rose again, and where that was proclaimed. Um, and what we're looking at this afternoon is the incredible purpose that the gospel gives us if we understand who Jesus is and what it is that he did. I reckon it would be fair to say that for most people, boredom is a significant factor in life. In terms of motivating or changing our behaviors, boredom is a significant factor. When, um, when I was a, a young kid, uh, as a young boy, boredom was probably one of the things you spent most of your time avoiding, and you would do just about anything to avoid it. 
Uh, when I was eight, I was at a friend's house and we had nothing to do. So we thought we'd head down to the local park to see if there was some kind of inspiration there. There wasn't. There was literally, it was just a park. There was nothing in it. But there was a canteen at the end of it. And next to that canteen was a lemon tree. And one of my mates had grabbed a lemon that was at the bottom of the tree that was looking a bit, you know, soggy and old and, and pegged it at the building to kind of see it splatter. And there was so much wall and just a tiny window. Um, but he man- if he was trying to, he couldn't have. But he managed to hit the window and it smashed. And at that point, we all froze, like wondering if we'd be arrested or if like lightning from heaven would come down and strike us down. And when it didn't, we took it as our sign that we probably should smash every window in the building. And we did that. And a few weeks after, we actually got caught out for doing that. And, um, and my parents sat me down, uh, because we're going to have to pay for it all and all of this kind of stuff. And they sat me down and asked me what happened. And being a kid that would only ever tell the truth, I said, well, I was walking on the side, like on the little hill next to the, the canteen, and I, and I slipped. And my, f- my foot kicked a lemon <laughs> at a broken window. And, um, and at that point, like, mum and dad, having surveyed the damage, could have thought one or two things. They either thought, look, our kid is the unluckiest kid in the world who kicked some kind of magic lemon that went, like, flew by itself or whatever, or is not telling the truth. And look, it did come out that that was the case, and I missed out on the year three disco and all of that kind of jazz, which was rough times. But, um... But the reason I say that is, look, as kids, we would do almost anything to avoid boredom, even to the point of delinquency. But to be fair, most of us spend a lot of our life avoiding boredom. I mean, boredom, if you're wondering what it is, really, boredom is that state when you have nothing better to think about than yourself. You're kind of stuck at this point where you have nothing really significant to occupy your mind to the point where you are just thinking about yourself. Walker Percy said that boredom is the self stuffed with the self. And that one makes sense, isn't it? The most boring people you know are people who are just the self stuffed with the self. All they can talk about, think about is themselves. Even when you're talking to them and you kind of relay some kind of story that's relevant to your life, it just reminds them of a story about their life that they can riff off. The more self-involved we become, the more boring we become and the more bored we become. And I don't think there are two types of boredom in life. There's kind of momentary boredom and then life boredom. Momentary boredom is when you've just run into a bit of spare time and you need something to occupy your mind. And if you've got a decent app or some good TV to watch or just some people to hang out with, that's enough to take care of it. But that's momentary boredom. I think there's a greater boredom that you might call life boredom, where my entire life trajectory is so much about me that I'm actually kind of bored about it. It's really just about myself. Those moments where you stop and you think, what what am I actually doing with my life? What's the purpose of it all? And we find ourselves getting bored of just about everything. Bored of our jobs, bored of our stuff, bored of our entertainments, bored of our relationships. And the reason for it is we need a reason to live or to give ourselves to that is greater than just ourselves. We need something that will demand our full attention for our full set of years, whatever that would be, that's greater than just me. And here what we see in this passage is that if we understand the gospel, it calls us to a purpose. And it's a purpose not about ourselves, but if we understand Jesus rightly, we'll see that he calls us to be about other people. That he calls us in the gospel to have an identity of a servant and a witness to the gospel. A life lived as servants for other people, finding our joy in laying our lives down for others. And so I'm going to pray that this afternoon that that's exactly what God would reveal through Acts 26. So pray with me if you would. 
Father, we pray that we may hear your word as your word this afternoon. May we pay attention to what you say. May we listen intently that these words will not be just the words of mere men, but of the God who made everything. That we would understand that you are good, that in sending your son Jesus to die in our place, you demonstrated your love, and that the gospel not only saves us and brings us in a new relationship with you, but gives us a purpose in life that drives everything we do. And Father, we pray that you would empower us to understand this by your Holy Spirit this afternoon. Amen. Well, to get you up to date as to where we're up to, last week Gav was speaking, and he spoke from a few chapters earlier, where Paul, uh, a guy who's become a Christian, and we'll find out a little bit more about the circumstances around that in this passage, but he's become a Christian, he's heading out and telling people about Jesus in the surrounding area. And he was in Jerusalem, and he was arrested and brought before a trial. There was a conspiracy against him. Forty men took an oath to say, we will not eat or drink until we have killed this man. So much did they hate him. Um, and, uh, and quite miraculously, uh, he, he was saved from that plot, that actually his nephew heard about it, told a centurion, who then told the tribune, who's kind of the commander over the, the Roman army in that quarter of, um, of the Roman world at that time, who believed him and gave Paul a guard of around 500 soldiers to move on. And to fill you in on where we're up to, just in case you're not familiar with ancient Near Eastern geography, I'll just have a map that comes up on the screen. They start in Jerusalem where Paul was on trial and was arrested. And now he's being sent up um, to Caesarea to meet uh, the governor, who at that time was Felix. As he goes along, on the next stop they move to Antipatris, where about 400 of the soldiers stop. And then the rest of them, the horsemen, kind of continue on and escort Paul in chains to Caesarea, which was kind of the, the central sort of governing air, uh, a sort of a location at that time in the area of Judea. And he stands there before Felix, who is the governor of the area, who puts him on trial, is interested by some of the things he says, but not convinced about Jesus. And so he puts him in jail to please the Jewish authorities who are in Jerusalem who want Paul dead. But he leaves him in jail because he's trying to get a bribe out of Paul, and Paul, as a follower of Jesus, will not pay it. And so he remains there for two years. After two years, Felix is replaced as governor by a guy called Festus, uh, and Festus again puts him on trial. At that time, the Jewish authorities try to get Paul transferred back to Jerusalem so that they can ambush him on the way and kill him, uh, but it's unsuccessful. And so at this time, Festus actually brings in the king, who's higher ranking again, to come and meet with Paul and to work out what do we do with this guy? Do we keep him in jail? Do we kill him? What is his fate? And so he brings along with him Herod Agrippa, who was the king at the time, And then we pick up the story in sentence 2 of chapter 26 where Paul is addressing all the Jewish leaders, the king and the governor at the same time. And it says this, 26.2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially you uh, because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The reason Paul says, I'm fortunate to stand before you, King Agrippa, is not just because he was a king, but as the king of Judea, he was familiar with Jewish customs and ways. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who kind of rebuilt the Jewish temple. But uh, these kings weren't really kind of true Israelite kings. Herod's family had converted to Judaism, um, probably some, you know, uh, decades before. But more than that, he wasn't really kind of a Jewish person. He ruled over that area, but he was appointed by the Romans to do so. It was kind of like a client state. 
And so he was never really, they were never that popular with the Jewish people. But the reason Paul says, I consider myself fortunate to say this before you, is he understands what's going on. He understands Jewish life, he understands the Bible and what goes with that. And as Paul makes his case, he knows that he's going to understand what this is about. And so going on, Paul gives his testimony, he gives his own story of how he came to be a follower of Jesus, and he gives it before the king and the governor and of all the men there who are looking to actually kill him. And we pick it up in sentence 15 of chapter 26. And this is Paul describing how Jesus confronted him in a vision as he was on the way to Damascus to kill and arrest more Christians. And he says this, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Just think how incredible this is, this situation. That Paul, standing there in chains, is a man who used to kill and arrest Christians. He says that he stood there and gave his vote of approval to see Christians murdered in front of him. And now he is a Christian, a follower of Jesus, in chains for that very reason. That's an incredible thing. That's crazy. He's spent all of his time since he came to know Jesus, since that moment on the way to Damascus, just telling people about who Jesus is. It turned his life around completely. In fact, you couldn't get more of a life reversal than that, from going from killing a people group to actually being almost killed for being one of them. It's a complete transformation. And yet it kind of makes sense because following Jesus, if we understand the truths of the gospel, has to be that transformative. It's not something you can kind of have a halfway response to. In some ways, it's kind of sad to me when I hear uh, Christian testimonies or stories that go something like this. I used to like drink and smoke and sleep around, but now I have three kids in a suburban and um, that's you know, how my life sort of turned around for Jesus. Like, look, it could be, but it may just be a coincidence. Often that's just the story of kind of growing up. What happens is that uni, you have heaps of free time, you party pretty hard, you travel a bit, you go in and out of relationships. Somewhere in your late 20s, you realize you don't have enough money to keep doing that, so you stay at the same job for four or five years. Then as you're approaching 30, an invisible alarm clock goes off and everyone suddenly realizes, I, I, I can't keep clubbing for the next five to ten years because it's going to go from cool to sad. And so now I need to switch tracks and be a marriage and family person. And everyone starts getting married. And watching my Facebook feed at 29 was almost like, like, like relational musical chairs, right? It's like the music had turned off and you're like, you just got to find someone and marry them. If you've, been, if you've been in a relationship for like seven years, then lock it down, make it happen. If six months, fine, just get it done, whatever it is. And then over the next two years, my newsfeed turns from like, you know, uh, pictures from exotic locations to just like baby photos to the point where I almost want to download that app that turns them into cat memes. <laughs> if you haven't seen that, it's a very, look, there are people who have a lot of free time out there. But oftentimes that can just be the, the trajectory of life that actually you kind of go from doing those things to not just because you kind of get older and that's just the culture. But this shouldn't be the case. The claims of the gospel are crazy. They are. I mean, think how crazy they are. The claim is that there is a God who knows all and sees all, who is all loving as well. That we have separated ourselves from that God. In sin, we've rejected him and we've left ourselves to our own devices. We've cut ourselves off from the source of life, meaning death forever. And yet... He entered human history. 
God himself walked as a man, experienced all the suffering of human life, and yet lived a life of perfect love to the point where people would travel for days or even for weeks just to meet Jesus to experience something of his kindness. And more than that, the reward that he got for that from his own people was betrayal and crucifixion on a Roman cross. That he was betrayed by his own people. That he suffered the worst possible death and yet he died willingly knowing that his death would be a sacrifice for their sin to bring them back in a relationship with God. He died for the very people that were nailing him to the cross. That is incredible. It would be impossible to say, yes, I believe that and it's not really had any significant kind of impact on my life or how I do things. It's life-changing stuff. As Christians, our story should be evidence of the fact that Jesus is real. And that's what most people want to know, isn't it? The world that are unconvinced about Jesus want to know this. What difference does he make? If God is real and he actually enters into your life and you can have a real relationship with God, what impact does it have at all? It should be the case that our life, like Paul's, is testimony of the fact that God is real and he changes lives. When I was in high school, I I just realized a bunch of these illustrations just illustrate what a bad person I was. But look, the gospel and all of that. Um, but in, in high school, you'll see where this one's going, but look, in high school, like a few times I'd shared with Mel stories of what I was like in high school, and the truth was that I was a bit of a bully. And, um, and I wasn't proud of that, um, and she particularly hated hearing stories about that. But it had been on my mind after finishing school, so I became a Christian in year 12, right at the end of school, and it had been on my mind for a number of years that I wanted to, to like, reach out to a couple of the guys who I felt I'd been particularly cruel to and, um, and to apologise. Like my, my hesitation with it was that I was worried that um, they would think I'm just doing this for me and bringing up all this kind of trouble and pain for them but just so I could feel better about myself. And so I was nervous about how to word it and everything. But after a while and after talking to a friend who had been bullied at high school and asking him, look, how would you feel if you got this kind of thing just out of the blue? He's like, I reckon you should do it. And so I did, and I sent it out. And one of the guys, it took me a while to actually track down, but I managed to. And I was nervous about sending him the email, partly because he's a Harvard lawyer, and I didn't know what kind of implications there might be. Um, <laughs> but, um, but also because I felt like, I don't know, like he's got on with his life, he's like, it's, you know, going to successful sort of, you know, barrister and all that kind of gear. And like, does, like is he really going to be like, what, you think you're like, I will lay awake at night thinking about you or whatever it is? Like, so anyway, so but I did it. And I got an email back that afternoon, and, um, and he's, like he said, he's been significantly moved by that and it would be great to catch up. And so we did. And so the next week, we went and had lunch. And I was talking to a guy that I hadn't seen for 20 years. Right? So in year eight, he was bullied so hard that he actually left the school. I hadn't seen him since. And uh, after we were talking a bit about that and all that kind of stuff, he asked me, he's like, look, I just have to ask, why, like, why out of the blue did you send this to me? I was able to say to him, look, the reason I did it was because in year 12, everything changed for me. Before that... I wanted to, I built my identity on being able to put other people down. The way you go up the social kind of ladder at high school is however many people you can trample on, trample on beneath you. And when I came to know Jesus, everything flipped upside down. I realized that my identity was as a child of God and that it wasn't about putting other people down or positioning myself according to them, but all that I am is based on who he is. And my life now is really to love and serve people the way that he has loved and served me. And, um, and I just kind of wanted to set the record straight. I didn't say it that like, succinctly or articulately. It was kind of like a bit of waffle and whatever. But um, you kind of get the idea. But it was an incredible opportunity to be able to stand there and say, look, we haven't seen each other since year eight, and I hope in God's grace that I'm actually a different person now. 
And it was an amazing thing to be able to do and to talk through. Paul here, I mean, you can times that by to the power of whatever, right? Paul is standing there saying to, to a king who has the power to, to decide whether or not he is free or whether he dies or any of that stuff, and he's saying to him, I've been transformed by meeting Jesus. I went from killing these people to being one of them who's been threatened with death in almost every city, beaten to within an inch of my life because I believe in Jesus. And why is he doing this? Why is he telling him this? Why isn't he arguing his legal case as to why there's been no charge brought against him? Why is it that he's not arguing that as a Roman citizen he should be treated better? We'll see why. Have a look what happens next as we pick it up in uh, sentence 24. It says this, As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For I am the king who knows, uh, for the, sorry, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for, he is not, uh, <clears throat> for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Festus, who has been listening in, has finally had enough. And he said, Paul, you are out of your mind. What are you doing? He says, I'm not. This is a rational response. If this is who Jesus is, then my life is a rational response to that. And more than that, Agrippa says, like, he, Paul, do you realize what happens in a trial and what this is actually about? This is meant to be about whether you live or die, whether you stay in prison or not, and you're telling me a story, you, you want to convert me to Christianity in this short amount of time? And Paul says, yeah, actually, not only you, but the governor and everyone else here. And keep in mind that the everyone else here are the people conspiring to kill him, and he knows it. And he's still seeking their good. He says, I wish that you were like me in terms of relationship with God. I wish that you were like me in every way except for these chains. He even wishes well upon those who would wish him harm. And then as we go on, we see that his story proves it. Look what it says at the, at the end of this uh, little text in Acts 26, 30 to 32. It says, Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn... They said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul just previously had appealed to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, if your life was on the line, you could appeal to Caesar. That is, I want my case to be heard in Rome before Caesar to make sure I get a just outcome. And you could call that. And once you did, you had to be escorted to the capital for that to happen. But Paul, knowing that there's no charge that's brought against him that can really keep him in prison, he's broken no Roman law, did it knowing that that would mean that he stays in prison for the next few years for one reason. Jesus told him that you're going to testify about me in Rome and Paul is going to go to Rome. And he sees that is the safest way, given how many people want to kill him, that is the safest way to get there. And his mind and heart is set upon it. And so regardless of what impact that has on him, he's going to do it. And the reason this is happening is because Paul understands the gospel and what, what impact that has on his life. He said before, when Jesus confronted him, he said, I will appoint you a servant and a witness. And so Paul understands that. He gets it. I'm a servant and I'm a witness. That's what my life is about. And so if that means appealing to Caesar and going to Rome, then that's what I'm going to do. 
His life is to serve and witness. Even when he's on trial, he is serving and witnessing to the people around him. The reason he wants to go to Rome and and testify before Caesar is that it might secure a better outcome for the Christians in Rome who are being persecuted if it's shown that they're actually not doing anything wrong. And so he continues to do it. He gets it. Having met Jesus, he's like, all right, I get it. I'm a servant and a witness. That's what my life is going to be spent for. And he goes for it. He doesn't care about safety or comfort. He's thinking, how can I serve and witness to as many people as possible before my time is up? So once you understand the gospel... You understand that there is both power and purpose in the gospel. The gospel is powerful to save. That means that we have a relationship with God based on nothing that we do. It is all on Jesus' death and resurrection, on his demonstration of power that sets us completely free. We don't do anything to earn God's favor. It's all been done. But we do get a purpose in the gospel, a life purpose. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to be servants and witnesses. It's kind of like this. If you've seen, if you've even heard of the movie The Shawshank Redemption, you should have. It's one of those, like, it's in the top 50 of every list and whatever, that kind of thing, right? Um, but um, it's, a, it's a movie about, um, like, like, spoiler alert, but it's 20 years ago. So, like, if you haven't seen it by now, then, again, it's on you. Um, but Shawshank Redemption is a guy who's kind of falsely imprisoned. And there are two characters who are released, and they have kind of parallel stories. The first one is a guy called Banks, and he's been in the, in the prison for like 40 years, life has completely changed outside, finally comes up for parole and he's released. But it's kind of like, it's, it's probably the saddest part of the movie because he gets out of prison and he realizes he has no idea what life's about. He struggles to even buy the groceries. He just, the world has changed so much that he doesn't even feel a part of it. And so he ends up taking his own life. And then later on in the film, a guy called Red, who had a similar length of sentence, is released and gets out of prison and starts to experience all the same things. And it's set up so that you're understanding that he's feeling the same things as this guy did previously before him. And when he gets out, though, there is one significant difference. When he's set free, he gets out and he's looking to find his friend Andy. His, his friend Andy has set it up so he's got enough money to actually go and meet him. And so he actually has the opportunity to do it. So when he gets out of prison, he's not freed to another type of, of prison life or another type of imprisonment but he's set free to go and do something, to go and pursue something and to find his friend again and to be finally reunited. As opposed to Brooks, he has something to do with his freedom. It's the same with the gospel. God has set you free completely, but not so you go, all right, well, like, what do I do now? I guess I'll just kind of do what I was doing before or just chill till Jesus comes back or something like that. And he sets you free with a purpose. The gospel power sets us completely free so that we're freed up to find life in witnessing and serving. It sets us free for a purpose. So I want to think about how this would affect us. How would it radically transform your life if you were here and a Christian and a follower of Jesus to understand completely that as, as an identity you are a servant and a witness of the gospel? I want us to think about this as a whole church and how it affects our missional communities, our small groups, our families, uh, and, and, and as individuals. See, as a whole church, we are called to serve and witness to the people around us. William Temple says... The church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Not the only organization, of course, there are many. But the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. As a church, we say we're here to see people who don't yet know Jesus find real relationship with him. The point of this church is not that we just grow bigger and bigger and bigger, that more and more Christians would join. Although, of course, if you're here and visiting and looking to join, you're welcome. 
But the idea is not that actually we try and build a church that's, that's just as big as we can possibly get by attracting as many Christians. You know, in Africa and in Asia and South America, the church is growing and growing and growing. But in the West and in Australia, it's shrinking. We don't want it to be the case that we're just the most successful funeral home there is. We have the softest pillow for Christians to come and die on as the church, as the church declines and disappears. That would not be the mission of the church. We're meant to be about others, about witnessing and serving others. One of the reasons we set a goal as a church to give away 20% of our budget to groups and organizations that help people that have no direct benefit to us is that it might be a witness from an overall stance that we are not here just about ourselves. That we, like Paul, are servants and witnesses out for the benefit of others. We're not just about ourselves. But think about it in terms of your missional community. If you're here in a part of a missional community, and one of the reasons we try not to do too many formal ministries at City Light is to free you up to invest in your missional community. Ebony spends her time here helping to develop a culture where we serve one another, where we live out this identity as servants. And when you first came to City Light, you may have found that the experience that you feel like, I feel like there's not a lot to do around here. And in many ways, that's deliberate. See, there, there are kind of two ways that you can serve. There's formal and informal. Informal service you serve a large number of people in a small way. By doing things like even like preaching up front, by helping on Sound AV or stuff with the Sunday gathering, you help a lot of people in kind of a small way. Informal service is when you help just a few people in a really big way. In missional communities, that's the space where you help people work through life crises, where people have, have, have suffered significant trauma and, and there's an opportunity to really help just one or two people in an incredible way. Will we help one another even financially when people come into trouble? Will we, we walk through one another day by day and week by week to look after one another? We really want it to be set up that we want to have opportunities to serve one another in formal and informal ways, but to free you up to really invest in those people who are around you. And as well as that, in, in missional communities, to live out this identity of servants and witnesses, there would be an opportunity to, to share the gospel with those around you that our groups wouldn't become little cul-de-sacs of Christians, but ones that, that push us on to reach out and connect with people and to love and serve the people who are around us. Well, lastly, think about it in terms of individuals. How would it change your life to know with deep conviction, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you're a servant and a witness? Let's think about just one area that probably dominates the landscape of your life. Just, it will start with just work. Most people, most Australians it would say, in terms of surveys that we feel like work is the thing that's in the way of life. That actually work itself is the thing that if you could, if there's some way to get around it, you would leave it behind so that you could get on with living life. Would it change the way you view work to know that you're a servant and a witness? Just think about it this way. Have you ever thought about the fact that work in, small, in some small way is a service? That, makes other, that it does good to other people or in some way helps them or makes their life better. Think about the, the, the very simple act of having breakfast. And let's imagine the most simple breakfast that you can. Let's think about Weet-Bix. Imagine that this morning you had Weet-Bix for breakfast. Just think about the network of relationships that actually had to go into that happening. There had to be a farmer who has a wheat harvest that's actually harvested and an entire field is compressed in a factory into a single brick of Weet-Bix that is basically bulletproof, right? <laughs> and somebody packed that and put that on a shelf. And imagine then, considering just all of those, but imagine then that you don't hate yourself and you actually had it with milk. 
That means that there was a whole other farm, a dairy farm, of, of a, you know, maybe a fifth generation farmer who hasn't been gouged by Woolworths yet, and, is, um, and, uh, and uh, lovingly provided that, and you bought it and put that together, and you had it on a table, and you had it with cutlery and a spoon that was also made or designed, that you had it on a table that was built or installed by people. Think of all the people that were involved in the simple act of just having breakfast this morning. The job is a service. And it might not seem that week by week, but to think about that and to think, if I'm someone who follows Jesus, who is the servant king, who said himself that he came not to serve but to be served, that I have an opportunity to serve through my work in some small way. As Christians, that should matter. It should mean that every job or task has significance or dignity in it because you're a servant and a witness. This affects the, the kind of job that you choose. You might say, I'm going to choose this path or this path because I think this one will help me serve as many people as possible. You might quit a job because you realize, actually, I don't think this company serves people. I think it takes advantage of people. And as a Christian, I don't think that's what I'm supposed to be putting my effort towards and contributing towards. That actually, I would pull back from that. You might take a promotion because you have a better chance to serve people. You might knock back a promotion and more pay because you realize, I've got a good network of relationships with people here that I witness to Jesus and I love and serve them. And you know what? Money isn't everything. I'm not going to take it, up, uh, take it going up the scale. Whichever way you cut it, the gospel should transform our work life in the majority of our weeks. John Wesley, the 18th century street preacher, said, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Which is exhausting to say, but even more so to live out. Unless we understand how much God has loved us and served us in Christ. People transformed by the gospel, shouldn't it transform the way that we think and the way that we live our lives? I mean, Paul here is in chains. He's literally in chains. And he can't stop thinking about how to serve and witness. That's what's on his heart. Even the very people who have put him in those chains. The gospel can transform us in incredible ways and should do. I think what's sad is that often as Christians get older, this is the very thing that we tend to lose sight of. Generally, the journey of, of Christians is from kind of radical to safe. When we start the Christian life, we're like, wow, Jesus could call me to do anything. could move my life up, move my job, whatever it is, and go and be somewhere for the sake of just serving and witnessing. But as we get older, we start to think, oh, look, you know, he might nudge me a bit this way, or I might do a bit less of this or a bit more of that. God's not going to do anything kind of radical in my life. We really lose that sense. And it tends to happen as we move through two phases of life. Two that I would call the both-and phase and the either-or phase. In, in university, you are in this unique window in your life where you have maximum freedoms and minimum responsibilities. Right? In terms of a Western worldview, that is the sweet spot. Right? That's as good as it gets until you retire when you're maybe not at the age where you can enjoy all of those freedoms anyway. So this is the kind of sweet spot. But as you move on from there, you move from the both-and phase where you can do everything and. You can have friends, you can serve, you can witness, you can work a job, you can study, you can catch up with your old friends and make new friends and make, you know, keep up with your uni friends. You can do all these things. You can travel, you can work, all that kind of stuff can happen. You can just end, 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 end. But as you get older, things get narrower and you have to start choosing this or that. Move into the either-or phase of life. As you work, you have to either-or when it comes to work or travel. As you develop significant relationships or potentially even get married, there's an either-or about friendships, that you're investing 
in a particular relationship that means forsaking some others. As you move into the parent phase, life just shuts right down. And <laughs> it doesn't. It's awesome. Um, but the very real thing about it is the thing that becomes most clear to you is it's an either-or phase. You can't be both ending. You've got to make real decisions about time and money and all these things because if you really care about these kids and this family and actually want to grow together as servants and witnesses, it's going to mean taking things seriously and thinking about it hard. We move from the both end to the either-or and it's often in that phase that Christians tap out. See, for Paul, the most immediate threat was persecution. When he was making decisions about serving and witnessing, he's like, which one's going to lead me to an earlier grave? And you would think that that would be the thing that would cripple a church, and yet it's not. If you look through the whole book of Acts, it just spurs the church on. And yet the thing that I think cripples the Western church is not persecution, but prosperity. It'll come up on the screen for you. John Piper, a preacher from uh, the northwest of the state, says this, The lesson is that comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety and freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. Inertia is the tendency of something that is standing still to stay standing still and of something moving to keep moving. The very things that we think would produce personnel and energy and creative investment of time and money in the cause of Christ and his kingdom instead produce again and again the exact opposite. Weakness, apathy, lethargy, self-centeredness, preoccupation with security. Persecution can have harmful effects on the church, but prosperity, it seems, is even more devastating to the mission which God calls us to. My point here is not that we should seek persecution. That would be presumption like jumping off the temple. The point is that we should be very wary of prosperity and excessive ease and comfort and affluence, and we should not be disheartened but filled with hope if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's true, isn't it? We all feel it, and it comes on as you get older. In some sense, sometimes we lose our edge. I think for my wife and I, we were praying about this. When this church started just four years ago, we thought, look, this is for serving and witnessing. We took a part-time job so I could work part-time at church. We were about to have our second kid. Um, our, the place that we were renting had just been sold, so we needed to find a place that was going to fit within that small kind of frame of income. But we were convinced, we're like, I think God is calling us to this so that we might serve and witness people and build a church where that happens. And so we're going to go for it. And it pushed us to prayer and to dependence on God. But as that eased up and our income got more regular and it's easy to kind of pay bills, you just pull back. It's like, we don't, it's like God gives us a good thing and instead of producing more praise and dependence on Him, it produces less. We're talking about the fact that it's kind of like with our kids. Oftentimes it's hard to give them good things because you almost pay the price for it. If you walk by an ice cream shop and they say, can we get one? And you're like, let's just do it. Just know that every time you walk past an ice cream shop after that, you will pay for it. <laughs> and tantrums in public are a high-voltage situation, right? Whether you give in, knowing that there's going to be consequences for that, or if you, people around you just be like, look at that guy, parent. He's the worst, right? <laughs> but oftentimes, they almost make it hard. Like, if you let them stay up and watch a movie, you know that after that, you're going you're gonna to have to really discipline them and say, you're going to have to get to bed on time, right? I wonder sometimes, I mean, you know, this isn't biblical, I'm just speculating, but you almost think, like, would, would God almost feel that same way? He's like, gosh, I really want to give you some good stuff, but every time, you know? And rather than producing more praise and dependence and thankfulness like it should, that would be the logical response, it doesn't. And we pull back from being servants and witnesses. Rather than seeing this stuff and going, man, we have so much more to serve and witness with, so much more to give away and to bless people with, instead it just comes about us. 
And it's hard to believe that the way to joy and the purpose in life and the way that would be more fulfilling, and we know that living for ourselves isn't going to do it, but we find it so hard to believe that being a servant and a witness will. And yet Paul, writing a letter to the Philippian church from a prison cell, says this, Philippians 3, 8-9, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Paul, at the end of his reasonably short life, one that was made considerably shorter because he followed Jesus, says he didn't miss out on anything. He says, everything I had, I count as loss because I've gained Christ. I know him and his love for me has transformed everything. He had joy. May God empower us to be of the same mindset. By his spirit, he might empower us to be servants and witnesses and to find joy in that in the world. I'm going to pray that that would be the case. Father God, we praise you that you set us free entirely by the power of the gospel, that it's nothing we do or contribute, and yet you don't leave us alone in the world, but you give us a purpose to fulfill, to be servants and witnesses to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. And we pray that you would empower us to do this, that we continue to press on, that our lives, rather than becoming more and more about us, will become more and more about the good of others. And that our desire would be to love and serve the people around us. We pray that you do this individually. We pray that you'd work this through our missional communities. And we pray that you'd work this through our whole church. That we might be a witness to you. That it might be a, a clear demonstration that you are real and that you transform lives completely. That you are the God who saves and saves entirely by grace. And Father, we pray that this would be the case for your glory alone. Amen. We're going to take a moment as we do each week before responding in praise and in song to to reflect on those things Um, and then we're going to come back together and respond. Take a moment to do that.